my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, the truth, Liverpool fans in Paris and the failure to learn the lessons of Heysel and Hillsborough. This after the European Cup final between Liverpool and Real Madrid, a match where, according to the French authorities, thousands of supporters from Merseyside turned up without tickets, while others used forgeries to attempt entry to the stadium. Supporters who were there say this just isn't true, and that the cops are covering up for their own incompetence after using pepper spray and tear gas indiscriminately against fans who just wanted to have a great night out. When we eventually got to the Metro, Samuel, the 10-year-old, turned to his mum, Kalo, and said, Mum, I never want to go to this football match again. I don't, I don't want to get to another final. If we get to another final, I don't want to go. That's a 10-year-old. We'll have more of that fan's eye view shortly. I'll also be hearing from the legal expert who headed up the research on the Hillsborough Independent Panel. He says the police, the French government and football's governing body UEFA all have tough questions to answer. This is the biggest football match that is played between clubs on the European continent annually. How on earth, in a city so beautiful and so well-organised in many other respects as Paris, could this actually happen? How could we get to a situation where people who had paid considerable amounts of money, not only for their tickets, but to get there from all over the world, are now outside the stadium, unable to get in for kickoff, and they're being tear gassed. All that to come. First, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, a monthly newspaper unafraid to tell truth to power. That's because we don't have a wealthy backer behind us telling us what to say. There are no corporate interests pulling our strings, no hedge fund billionaires in the background. We're supported by thousands of ordinary people like you. You can find out more at our website, bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And if you have already taken out a subscription, thank you. First reports from the European Cup final between Liverpool and Real Madrid last month sounded just like the bad old days of football, with kick-off delayed for 36 minutes because of disorder outside the stadium. The French Interior Minister Gérard Darmanin and Sports Minister Amélie Oudéa-Castera laid the blame squarely on Liverpool fans, amid claims that 40,000 Red supporters tried to enter the stadium either with forged tickets or no tickets at all. They were backed up by the chief of police, Didier Lalmont, who deployed tear gas and told a hearing in the French Senate this week that its use was necessary, even against women and children. These claims had horrible echoes of the Hillsborough disaster in 1989, when lies told about Liverpool supporters were magnified in Rupert Murdoch's Sun newspaper and for many years became the accepted mainstream version of what happened, even if they were challenged by many fans. Unlike 1989, the accounts of Liverpool supporters in Paris have been aided by videos shot on smartphones, which in many cases flatly contradict the official version. French officials have CCTV cameras to back up their version of events, don't they? Sadly not. The footage has, conveniently you might think, been deleted. 
John Mackey, a Liverpool fan since 1965, went to the game with his daughter Fiona and has been telling me about a night of confusion and chaos at the Stade de France. As soon as we got to the um, metro station, Fiona turned to me within five minutes of uh, coming off the train. She says, this doesn't look right, Dad. And it really went downhill from there. This is probably a good half mile, maybe a mile from the metro to the stadium. You would have expected some stewarding, some decent signage. And all the time, the only signs I saw was down, down one boulevard. And it was almost as if somebody from a, uh, a primary school had um, made a sign that just said STAD with um, an arrow. And we saw three of those on three trees. Within 10 minutes of walking around a couple of uh, boulevards, uh, which we believe to be on the way to the stadium, we came across our first kettling. Again, no reason, no signs or no information as to uh, why we were being kettled. We were kettled for a good 10, 15 minutes. Fortunately, the Liverpool fans were in high spirits, an opportunity to have a chat and sing a few of our songs, a few of our anthems. So this must have been around about a quarter to seven French time. So still a good two and a quarter hours before the scheduled kickoff. We then approached our first visible police roadblock, for want of a better word. You had um, two police vans parked back to back. But interestingly, there were two police officers stationed next to each one. The one on the right was signaling to go right. The one on the left was signaling to go left. So again, mixed signaling, um, but with no information. There was no communication at all. And I suppose uh, it's, a, it's a horrible phrase to use, it, and it's a very much a 1980s football term for fans. We followed the masses and we were basically herded down the subway. We felt, or I felt, that the sense of direction was the right one. If we'd chosen the, the right hand, option we would have been in the stadium uh, concourse within 10-15 minutes but um, we we followed the masses and uh, we, were, we went under an underpass and when we emerged we were faced with a bottleneck again created by badly parked or ill-thought parking of police vans. So roughly at this point John how close were you to the stadium? We couldn't actually see it, but I would estimate it was probably some maybe 500 yards, no more than that. It was maybe a quarter, half a mile, and the crowd was slowly moving, and there was no pushing, there was no shoving. We just basically waited patiently, shuffling forward every few seconds, maybe stopping when we got to a pinch point for a few minutes. The police were to our left. They were all in riot gear. In fact, you know, sometimes you go, you, you travel away and some of the police forces have chosen that this was a, a low risk event and they have their baseball caps on. It's far more welcoming. Already, if you're geared up and they were like the, the Darth Vader's, if you like, you, you, you suspect that they are either expecting trouble or they are looking for trouble. Crazily, we had some guys were and girls in wheelchairs that must have been horrific for them again we tried to make space for them then a group of visually disabled fans tried to pass with their guide we 
literally <laughs> parting of the waves, for want of a word, you know, sort of a parting of the Red Sea, so they could get through as quickly as possible. But again, I have to emphasise the fact that there was no communication. It was just a case of being patient and, you know, being careful with each other and looking out for each other. It was about 10 past seven UK time, 10 past eight French time when we actually emerged on the concourse. I took a video of where we'd come through and how crammed and uh, horrific it was. And a lot of people have said, there was that potential death trap. You were eventually able to get to the turnstile where you were due to enter the ground or close to it. We went immediately to start queuing. Fiona was um, in one block and I was in another block. I ensured that she was safely there. By sheer coincidence, a friend of ours from the game turned up with her 10-year-old son and I made sure they were together. And again, a great thing about um, football fans, and maybe I'm biased, but particularly the Liverpool fans, is that they will look after their own. Three Scouse lads said to me and to the girls, that, you know, don't worry, mate, so we'll, we'll look after the girls. And uh, the lad, they stepped back a little bit to create a little bit of breathing space. And sure enough, throughout the, the, the queuing and the game and afterwards, they were um, there as... Uh, protectors as, as, as it were and the good news for Fiona is that she got in but you never did why not no I was trying to get into one where I guess there was more issues we came across fairly quickly the uh, the hordes of hooligans for want of a better word French locals from the Saint-Denis area and they were clearly intent on doing all they can to take advantage of vulnerable people. They were there, for want of a better word, to be on the rob. They were snatching bags from people. They were stealing watches, literally, by just going up and snatching them off the wrists. If somebody had a baseball cap that they wanted, they just snatched it and disappeared. And perhaps some naive, not, shall we say, experienced matchgoers had tickets snatched out of their hands. But more dangerously, they were regularly trying to storm the gates to force entrance. I also witnessed them trying to climb the, uh, the fencing. One or two would succeed. And it was really a case of the authorities closed our gate down. And it was clear, well, within 15, 20 minutes of curing that this was going to be uh, a long evening. Subsequently, I never gained admission to the stadium at all. Did you feel unsafe? Yes in a word, indiscriminate uh, pepper spraying, which I guess you've seen from a lot of the media coverage. And I must say at this point, the media coverage has been absolutely superb. Hell of a difference from uh, 1989. And I hate to harp back constantly to Hillsborough, but there were so many similarities, Adrian. The overcrowding, the lack of police control. But um, in this instance, I think because a, a fair few journalists were actually caught up in the same experiences that Fiona and I encountered, they had, a, if you like, an inside track which um, probably wasn't available 33 years ago. And it was clear that I wouldn't get in, but I was definitely worried and concerned. Within oh, probably 20 minutes of me just stepping to one side to avoid contact with the hooligans, the French riot police 
let go of a volley of tear gas and they were clearly intent. I think they finally had enough with the local residents of Saint-Denis, the aforementioned hooligans, and uh, they started to baton charge the French people. I was leaning against a wire fence and was quite happy to see the majority of the riot police uh, run past. But this one officer, we made eye contact and she was probably no more than three or four yards away from me, but running to pass in front of me. And then she just made a, a beeline for me. Looking at her in her eyes, we made eye contact and it was one of absolute sheer anger. She raised her baton. And I immediately, my reflex action was to lean back on the fence. Thank God there was some give in the fence because her baton came down exactly where I'd been standing as I flexed back and she just ran on. It was horrific. I, don't, I, don't, I didn't go to a football match to be pepper sprayed, to be in a, a tear gas cloud and to be baton charged and to have such a near miss. I was close to tears, I don't mind admitting that. John Mackey brought to tears at the European Cup final, and not just by the result. While he missed the match, his daughter Fiona did get in, as we've heard, and made a quick escape on full time with friend Kayla, her son Samuel, and three Scouse lads who were doing their best to protect them. As I headed towards the metro, there was, on their left-hand side, upwards of 100 hooligans firing fireworks at them. And on the opposite side were the riot police firing pepper spray at them. And Fiona said something the following day to me when we were recounting our experiences. I didn't know which ones to be more frightened of, the hooligans or the police. And the police are meant to be there to protect the innocents. One of the lads who were protecting them did get a little bit of a kicking, but nothing too bad, but that could have been one of the girls, it could have been Samuel. When we eventually got to the Metro, Samuel, the 10-year-old, turned to his mum, Kalo, and said, Mum, I never want to go to this football match again. I don't I don't want to get to another final. If we get to another final, I don't want to go. That's a 10-year-old. John Mackey and accounts like his and that of his daughter have been told by many Liverpool supporters who attended the game, with the police in particular coming in for criticism. But what about UEFA, European football's governing body, under whose auspices the game took place? They have form. Their head of security, Jelko Pavlika, has previously been criticised after failing to anticipate trouble at the European Championship final at Wembley last summer. And because fans at the Europa Cup final between Rangers and Eintracht Frankfurt had water bottles confiscated by stewards in the searing heat of Seville. It's not the first time that UEFA's competence has been questioned. In 1985, 39 fans, mostly Italian, died at Heysel Stadium in Brussels when Liverpool played Juventus in another European Cup final. Let's hear now from Phil Scrayton. He's a law professor at Queen's University in Belfast and was one of the driving forces in the campaign for justice after the Hillsborough disaster. He's heading up an independent inquiry into what happened in Paris. As soon as the issues came to light, which was very, very soon after, well, after kickoff, really, I was getting messages coming through about, here we go again. We're stuck outside the stadium. We can't get in. 
And now we're being, uh, which I couldn't believe at first, we're being tear gassed. Men, women and children in our usual gear, you know, football shirts, shorts, beautiful day. We've been celebrating. The crowd is really well behaved. Everything is going according to plan. But we got here and we've been outside here for two, three hours. We can't get in. We're penned. There is absolute chaos. And what's more, some of us uh, are being assaulted by some of the local people and robbed as well. We had no idea that this was going to happen. And all we can think of is takes us back to our experiences or the experiences we heard of from our parents of what Hillsborough was like. And I think the immediate response, I guess, was how could this possibly happen? This is the biggest football match that is played between clubs on the European continent annually. How on earth, in a city so beautiful and so well-organized in many other respects as Paris, could this actually happen? How could we get to a situation where people who had paid considerable amounts of money, not only for their tickets, but to get there from all over the world, are now outside the stadium, unable to get in for kickoff, and they're being tear gassed. It was incredulity. That was my first response. And of course, these days, because people have got instant access to media through their mobile phone, because they have instant access to what is happening around them because of their mobile phone, it became very quickly clear to anybody that there was a major breakdown in safety, in access to the stadium, and a major breakdown in communication between those organizing this event, those responsible for safe conduct at the event, and the fans themselves. And how many fans have contacted you with their accounts? And what similarities do those accounts have? Almost as soon as the event was over, a number of people put my name out, either uh, tweeted it or sent it out through one of the other platforms, saying that, you know, you should get in touch with Bill Strayton because of his work on Hillsborough, et cetera. And very soon I realised that I needed to put in place a way of receiving statements because they would come in in all shapes and sizes. They would come in in all formats. So right away at the outset, I decided I would be a conduit for statements and perhaps pass those on to whoever needed to receive them. But as I received them and as I realized that there was a problem about UEFA receiving those statements, because obviously we talked about this, an issue would be if UEFA is, is examining itself, you know? I felt, having worked on the Hilfer Independent panel and being the prime author of its report, I felt I know the importance, the significance of that word, independent. You have to be able to stand back and say, what we're evaluating here is completely independent of any interest, whether it's an interest in the by, that would be identified as being by the club or by any party to this or any government agency. So that was the first issue. But within days, I had received hundreds of statements. And now I've received over 600 
detailed statements, plus many photographs. Because obviously these days, people are recording what's happening in real time. And the, the importance of that is not just the accuracy of the photograph of the video that they've taken. There is a timeline on that. So you're getting an actual timeline accuracy as well as a visual accuracy. So they came flooding in and it was then that I realized that there were going to be a series of elements here that needed to be covered to make sense of the evidential base that we were receiving. So I decided to contact a whole set of people who I've worked with over the years who have expertise in, in the law, in media. For example, there were a lot of children and young people caught up in this who have experience of working with children, young people, people who are scholars in the area of language and understand how you can make parallels and combine whole ranges of statements into one unity. And obviously, another person that I wanted to contact was somebody who had a really long-term experience in safety and how crowds are passaged into events, et cetera, et cetera. So I now have a group of seven people working with me, but I'm the conduit for it and also have decided that in order to retain our, our uh, independence, we will write a full report based on the statements from Liverpool fans and broken into 11 different sections that are each of which are substantive. Yeah. yeah. I suppose the key question arising from this, Phil, is how complicit in the problems that occurred are UEFA, European football's governing body? Well, let's put it this way. If we just for a second put to one side this event, if a major event of international significance is being held anywhere, there are a range of authorities that have to be clearly defined in terms of their responsibility. So the first issue is it's an international event. It's being held in a capital city. Both the national government and the local government have responsibilities for that event being held in that stadium. The second issue, people who are involved in transportation have a really significant role to play, getting people to the ground safely, whether that's across the channel by coaches, train, whatever, accommodation in the city. In other words, all of these surrounding issues have to be in place in order to safeguard the fans and their best interests. They're paying a phenomenal amount of money to come to this event, both in terms of access to the stadium, their tickets, but also in terms of their transport, people coming from actually all over the world. I have statements from Australia, Canada, USA, people coming from all over the world, investing a lot of money and time for this celebratory event. So they have to be looked after. They have to be cared for. There is a duty of care of all those authorities. That's even before we get to understanding the duty of care that, that should be afforded to them in terms of them at the stadium. So safe passage to the stadium, arrival at the stadium, that then becomes the responsibility 
of those who own and control the stadium and the licensing, and we learned this from Hillsborough, the licensing of that stadium for events of this size. So I would assume that the licensing would extend to local government as it would in most other states. It also is about what is put in place in that stadium to ensure that fans' best interests are taken care of. And by that, I mean stewarding, so effective stewarding. Now, obviously, a movement of a crowd of this size is going to take place only because there are appropriate transportation facilities, parking cars, if they come in their own cars, but more significantly, the rail and bus transport to the stadium. So that is absolutely crucially significant issue. So those responsibilities all have to be in place. And UEFA has a responsibility, not only for putting the match on, but it also has a responsibility to ensure that all of those safety facilities, that all of those authorities involved are in place. They can't just assume that everything's going to be okay. UEFA has a responsibility in terms of overviewing policing, local authority provision, transportation, all of those issues. So it's not just necessarily a failure in what happens directly outside the event. It's actually about UEFA being sure when this game was decided upon in February, that between February and last week, that period of time is used to ensure that everything is in place for the safe conduct of the game before and during, but also after the game. How do you think they discharge that responsibility in this case? I don't want to preempt our findings, but to all intents and purposes, it appears that it was minimal. I have no idea at this stage quite what UEFA was doing during that period. It's not evident whether any of those preparatory conditions were put in place. And that is of real concern. I mean, what was their due diligence? The, the word we use in the law is due diligence. What that actually means is that it is incumbent on authorities to ensure diligently that appropriate provision is made in any given circumstance. I can see no evidence at this stage of due diligence. Otherwise, how could it have happened that, for example, so many fans came in on one access in terms of the RER, the train? How is it that in this one game, this one event, over five times more people came in on one line than would be normal? Now, partly that's explained by strike action, but it appears that that wasn't even taken into account. That means that the station where those fans were deposited was a place where they had to follow road signs to the stadium. And it appears now that 37,000 were brought in on that one line and they followed signage, which took them to a really dangerous place. There was no stewarding, although the police were around and observing their walk to the stadium. The majority arrived two to three hours before kickoff. They went through a housing estate, a narrow underground tunnel, and then they were trapped. 
because only five external ticket docks were open. This isn't the entry to the stadium. This is entry to get to the entry to the stadium. And that's where the bottleneck initially occurred. In establishing a duty of care, it is incumbent on those organizing such a major event that all of those plans and all of those access points are given due diligence, that they are well organized. And the emphasis always, especially after Hillsborough, has to be on crowd safety. How do we move a crowd along gently to access the points of entry? That didn't happen. And it didn't happen because of a major breakdown in the approach to the stadium, a major breakdown in stewarding the crowd. And I would suggest as a football fan that UEFA have got some really hard questions to answer. There was the rushing of Wembley Stadium for the 2020 Euro final, which took place actually in 2021. There was the incident recently in the Europa League final in which Glasgow Rangers took part, in which fans actually had water and medicines confiscated from them as they entered the stadium in a boiling hot city. From all that you've just said, Adrian, the issues are now self-evident. You know, if we look at crowd safety procedures in any event, whether we're talking about the Open Championship or, you know, in golf, or we're talking about Wimbledon, any of these events where masses of people are going to arrive, more or less in the same period of time, there has to be filtering and stewarding in a friendly, supportive manner. We could not imagine, and this is the point, we could not imagine, those two examples I've given, could you imagine people arriving at Wimbledon, people arriving at the Open Golf Championship, or a major test match, and we're talking about similar sized crowds, and being met outside by riot police. We, We can't even comprehend that. And people say, well, that's because of what football supporters, what football fans do. The answer is, no, it isn't. It's not what it's about. And it hasn't been for years what it's about. But that mentality that they have to be policed in an aggressive way is set in all of the organisations. And I think that for UEFA to, in any way, deny their responsibility for taking the game, football, soccer, forward in terms of not only their own responsibilities, but also in their liaison with local policing. That is an essential part of how they should be conducting affairs. But of course, what we see is an immediate reaction, and we saw it in one moment, as soon as the kickoff was delayed, the notice board inside the ground made it clear it was the late arrival of fans when they knew whoever directed that notice to be put up in English knew absolutely that it had nothing to do with late arrival. It was due to mismanagement of the crowd. And we also had... French politicians blaming thousands of ticketless fans turning up and effectively rushing the gates. 
that had horrible echoes of Hillsborough in terms of a false narrative that was put out there and taken up, certainly in the case of Hillsborough, as the truth by many news organisations. And I use that phrase advisedly because that was the phrase that was used on the front page of The Sun shortly after the Hillsborough tragedy, the truth, which in fact was anything but the truth. But nevertheless, that narrative of fans attempting to rush the gates at Hillsborough, dishonestly put out there by the police at the time, plays in people's heads. And it was there again from French politicians in the immediate aftermath of this near tragedy, this tragedy thankfully avoided. Adrian, it's a really important point you make because literally while people were still being carried on hoardings across the pitch at Hillsborough, uh, nobody knew what the extent of death was at that point. We had the statements coming out that Liverpool fans were responsible for violence in the stadium. So the narrative that became taken up by The Sun and other newspapers as well, that false narrative, was informed from the highest level within minutes of the events happening at Hillsborough, while it was still happening, while people were still dying. Now, what, and I've always argued that that became that interlinking between the official narrative and the media narrative, that interlinking became the defining moment. And we saw exactly the point you're making, Adrian. We saw that repeated here that the narrative of Liverpool fans arriving late, trying to press to get in, all of the rest of it, that narrative was the one that was immediately put out, even inside the ground where everybody who was in knew that that wasn't the case. That up the tensions. It also failed and deflected any kind of attention away from the failure of ticket machines. People were arriving to go in in Paris through the turnstile, and the tickets did not work. For some, they never worked. They didn't have bulk tickets. They bought their tickets via the club. They'd been allocated in the ballot via the club. So they knew they were genuine. So there they were trying to get these tickets to work. They wouldn't work. Some cases, they never worked. In other cases, they worked at the fifth or sixth attempt. And in other cases... While they were trying to do this, their tickets were stolen from them, ripped from their hands. So this became very quickly a situation. You know, what I would want to say at this point is it was remarkable, the patience and the steadiness of those Liverpool fans. Desperate, they had now lost all this money and their potential for seeing the game. Or by this time, they were so anxious that they didn't want to see the game. I mean, they had children with them, that they just turned and walked away. One of the things that I would say was all the potential was there for major crowd disturbance, and it never happened. But as they walked away, they were tear gassed. I mean, you cannot write that script. This is a major European capital. This is 2022. You cannot even begin to assess realistically how serious was the failure of UEFA, the local authorities, of policing, 
And I think that that's beginning to be recognised quite quickly in France. Back in 1985, Phil, I was a young man and I remember watching the horror of the Heysel Stadium tragedy unfold on television. Now, we know that there was crowd violence on that day, but we also know that UEFA had chosen an inappropriate stadium for that match. It was a crumbling stadium. It was inadequate to deal with the crowds who were gathered there and collapse of part of the stadium contributed to the deaths of Juventus supporters in that final against Liverpool. And here we are talking about a potential for similar tragedy 37 years later. Why is it so difficult for the authorities, both in terms of governments, but particularly in terms of UEFA, to organise matches, attracting many thousands of people, but safely and peacefully. I want to say something about Heysel, and it's this. What people have been, I suppose, careless about is only understanding Heysel as an issue of crowd-related violence. There's no question that a small number of Liverpool fans on a terrace tried to get down the terrace to a group of Juventus fans that were in the bottom corner of that terrace. In doing so, the people panicked, the wall collapsed, and people died. A dreadful tragedy. All of the focus then became that small group, 20-odd Liverpool fans, who tried to get down the terrace. Not all the focus, however, should have been there. And in fact, the Belgian authorities, their report, actually certainly doesn't exonerate them. But what it does is it demonstrates absolutely clearly, first of all, the regulation and the separation of fans outside the stadium, where many Liverpool fans have been attacked by Juve fans. Secondly, the distribution of fans on that terrace. How on earth did Juve fans get access to tickets in a Liverpool part of the stadium. In other words, this was a question of ticketing and black marketeering. Thirdly, the state of that terrace itself. Heysel was condemned. It is a condemned stadium. This was its last ever match. The idea that you decide to play a football game of such significance with so many supporters in a condemned stadium is almost beyond belief, but they did. And the reason it was condemned was because the terracing itself was crumbling, the crowd barriers were crumbling, and as we saw, tragically, the perimeter wall collapsed. That's where most of the people died. The next element was the policing of the crowd, the failure to actually keep the crowd separate initially, but also the policing was inadequate. The stewarding was inadequate. Now, somebody hearing me say this will say, oh, here is somebody from Liverpool who is now placing all the blame everywhere else but on the Liverpool fans. No, that's not what I do for my living. What I do for my living is that I spend my time attempting to identify the crucial elements of any given situation. 
and how they will stand up legally. All that I've just said has not come out of Phil Straton's brain. It's come out of the internal Belgian report itself, which didn't just blame those Liverpool fans who were culpable, but it also placed responsibility on the stadium owners, the organisers, the local authority, UEFA. It placed the responsibility on all those authorities. And that's what has not been listened to. So everything has now is still concerned with the policing of supporters, the regulation of supporters. But all of those other issues that were so clear at times have not been picked up. They have not been uh, in any way learned from. And what we saw in the start of France was exactly that kind of complacency, that kind of ignorance of the reality. And let me just add this. In an event, which was a multi, multi-million pound event, where people were paying extraordinary amounts of money for their tickets. Professor Phil Scrayton. Now, UEFA, which, like the French authorities, initially blamed Liverpool fans for the 36-minute delay to kick-off, belatedly apologised to supporters at the match, saying that no football fan should be put in that situation and it must not happen again. They've also launched what they call an independent review, led by a Dr Tiago Brandao Rodriguez, a Portuguese politician. Liverpool FC are unimpressed, with reports pointing out that he has previously worked with a Portuguese football official who acts as a senior advisor to UEFA president Alexander Seferin. It remains to be seen, then, how independent his independent report will be, or indeed whether UEFA is willing to learn the lessons of the past. What we can be confident of, though, is that Phil Scrayton's inquiry will attempt to tell the whole story, and we'll be following that here on the Byline Times podcast. I'm Adrian Goldberg, and this podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. Get more details at bylinetimes.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.